welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. My name is Mike. If we haven't met, I'm the lead pastor at Awaken. I want to invite you to turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 3. And uh, we are in a series called Hebrews. We have a great marketing team, very creative people, and uh, we've called it Hebrews, because that's what we're studying. So uh, uh, we're in about week six, and today we're going to turn a corner uh, from a conversation that we've been in with the author of Hebrews uh, surrounding angels and their role and sort of why they make an appearance in this book, and move more towards something that I think actually uh, is a message that I was... uh, I've heard songwriters say that sometimes a song kind of writes itself, uh, where sometimes it's a real labor of love and you have to work and work and work, and it's like pulling teeth to get the song to sort of come into being. Uh, And sometimes they just fall out of the sky. And and I would agree in terms of the art of, of writing sermons and trying to create something each week. And this one just sort of like was there. Uh, for me, and it was a, I think for me, an encouragement. It was uh, a message that I needed to hear on just some reminders of some things that I think are really, really important. So last week, uh, like I said, we've been, um, we, we, we sort of looked at this argument, which was really a micro narrative that's a part of a larger narrative, a meta narrative, as it were, uh, that the author of Hebrews was in. And it's this invitation back to the beginning. And the beginning, of course, is this idea that or this place where humanity is partnered with God in the work of creation. This is where the beginning of the story begins. This is where Genesis begins, where humans are invited into this partnership. And of course, we forfeited that, uh, uh, our our mother and father, as it were, uh, Adam and Eve in the story, and and sort of turned away from this invitation and this, this place, this idea, this sort of reality that God had created for us. And the author is is getting at this idea that it's Jesus who brings us back, that invites us back to the beginning again, that we're invited to participate with God in the work of creation, in the work of redemption now, on this side of resurrection. Uh, Nothing big, you know, just a little flannel graph story, uh, as it were, not not too big of of an idea in the scriptures. Actually, it's the idea, it's the biggest one. Um, So today we turn to chapter 3. I'll invite you to stand, and we'll read verses 1 through 6 says this, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. Just Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of the house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone But God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all of God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. Pray with me. God, as we study this morning, I pray that this would not be an exercise in religion or in uh, habit, but that it would be an encounter with you. God, that wherever we are this morning, whatever we need, that you would be that, that you would be comfort, that you would be hope, that you would be peace, that you would be encouragement, that you would be challenge, that you would be invitation to us where we are. And so we are grateful for this book. 
which is alive, which is your words. And we are more grateful for Jesus, who was alive and resurrected at work in the world. So help us to find you, help us to see you, uh, help us to say yes to whatever it is you're inviting us to. And all God's people said, amen. You can have a seat. Uh, in the early 1900s, there was a, a, a sports team called the New York Yankees. Anybody ever heard of the New York Yankees? Does anybody hate the New York Yankees? Yeah, okay, okay. They're, they're a team that's that sort of loved to, to be hated. Um, but the New York Yankees owners in the early 20s went on a limb and they built this stadium that was seated 60,000 people. It was twice as many people as any other baseball stadium at the time. And they got a lot of flack for it. A lot of people were saying, like, why on earth would you do that? How arrogant that you think you could fill 60,000 seats in this stadium. But they did it anyways. They bought, I have a hair in my mouth. <laughs> and I keep feeling it. You know that feeling? That's terrible. Uh, so they went, they went ahead and did it. They bought uh, this lumber yard in the Bronx for $600,000, and they built this stadium. And in 1932, it opened with a rousing loss to the Red Sox, 4-1. to one. Yep, yep, yep. But uh, there was one writer, a guy named Frank Lieb. He was a writer for the New York Telegram. He said this. He said, this is the house that Ruth built. Now, for you non-baseball fans, we're not talking about a woman named Ruth or a biblical character, but rather, of course, Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth, one of the most famous baseball players of all times, and I think Lieb nailed it, and many people would agree that this stadium was the house that Babe Ruth built. And the the Yankees went on to be, and, and still are, one of the most storied franchises in all of sports history with more championships than lots of teams combined together. Now, you might be wondering, why would I bring that up? I, you know, I don't do a lot of uh, illustrations, especially about sports. When I, when I do, it's not typically baseball. But I want to suggest that the writer of Hebrews is, is asking a similar question. If the Yankees were asking, or the people of New York, who, who built this house? Who built this stadium? The author of this book is saying, who built the house known as God's people? Who is at the center of it? Who is sort of at the, at the base, or, or, or who is the creator? Who built God's people, this house that we might say is God's people. Now, in the first century, if you would ask this question, who built God's house uh, among Jews, many of them would say uh, or, or equate God's house to the temple, right? The temple is in Jerusalem. It's the center of the worship of God's people. Uh, four times a year, Israelites would come to, the, to Jerusalem to celebrate and, and offer sacrifices. So it's the temple built by Solomon and then reconstructed by Herod. It's the temple that is God's house, and certainly they would have connected the temple to Torah, Torah being the law, the first five books of the Bible. This were, these were the scriptures to them at that point. Certainly some, some of Psalms had been written and other books, but to them, scripture was Torah. So they would have connected Torah to who, who built God's house or what is God's house, and they would have connected Torah to Moses. Moses is, of course, we've learned, the guy who received Torah, received the law on Mount Sinai, also known as Charlton Heston. But then, of course, there were, these, there were these radicals, these sort of splinter groups of people who believed that God's house was not a building built with the, the, the hands of men, but rather it was a people. It was a sacred community of people that lived in the world. So who built God's house? Today, what I want to do is I want to I try to understand what the author of Hebrews is doing and why on earth he's asking this question. Uh, what would motivate this person to write on this topic? And then... I want to offer one major idea, which I think is what the, what the author is getting at. 
and then sort of explore uh, or, or bring that idea to 2015 for us at Awaken, for you and I. So a little bit of background on this one idea before we get to it. Um, there were mostly two groups of people that we're talking about when, when we're reading a book like this, Hebrews. Uh, one group is a group of Jewish people. Uh, you have a mix of devout Jewish people, and then you have these new revolutionaries, these new sort of radicals who are following Jesus, and clearly there would have been pressure among these religious communities. Um, Judaism was very clear about Torah. It was very clear about the first five books of the Bible and about this book that Moses had given them. It was very clear that it was complete, that it was very binding. It was the center of their religious life. It was, uh, there was nothing to add to Torah. It was, it was it. It was complete. Don't touch it. Don't add to it. Uh, for those that know the song, uh, Oh, for a Thousand Tongues to Sing, do you know this old hymn? The guy that wrote it, his name was John Wesley. And there's actually like nine verses to this. So there's just, it's, it's a mass of words. And Wesley is on record saying at one point, he says, listen, guys, if you think you can add anything to this song, you can't. I've got it all. So don't bother trying. He, would have, he was very, he was like, don't touch it. It's done. It's complete. In the same way, this is how Torah was thought about. It was, it was unalterable, inflexible. You don't touch it. It's complete. Now, if you believed this about Torah, you, then Jesus, at best, becomes a person who can only add commentary or only talk about what it means to live this out. He can only bring new insight to what's already been said. And of course, Moses then is still superior to Jesus because Moses is the one that got the law. He's the one that received the law. And if you believe this, then of course you also believe that the Messiah had not yet come to Israel. The Jews were waiting for the long-awaited Messiah. Read the, the latter half of Isaiah, and you get this trope, this longing again and again and again. God, when will you come? Read the Psalms and Proverbs. When will you come back to Israel? When will you come back to Zion? So if you believe that Jesus was only at best a commentary on Torah, then you would have also believed that the kingdom had not yet come. The age to come, which they were waiting for, had not yet begun. So this is one group of people you have present in this conversation. On the other side, you have this group of Christians, this group of newly uh, devoted followers of Jesus. And as you can imagine, they are confessing that Jesus is Lord, that he's the Messiah, that he's the promised one of Israel. And so, of course, you can imagine the conflict here. One group is saying, no, it's Moses. He's the one who received the law. He's superior to Jesus. And then you have this other group of people who are saying, no, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the long-awaited one of Israel. So, if you're a part of this group of people, in some way you, you feel like you've been freed from this law. You've been freed from this thing that in some ways, and, and unfortunately, had been a burden around your neck. And I don't know if any of you have sent kids off to college before, or if you've had a friend who grew up in a really constricted atmosphere, or a really, really rigid fundamental, whether it's religious or, or non-religious, fundamentalism, you watch a kid who grows up in that setting and then they go off to state school and it's just like Katie bar the door. You ever, have you seen this happen? You know, it's like party time all the time. You know, excellent, let's do this. And it's sort of this pendulum swing that often happens with kids where not only do they sort of throw caution to the wind and go the other direction, but when they're over here looking back on what they've experienced, there's often negativity, there's often sort of this dispersion that they like, like as far away from where they've come as, as they can get. We've seen this before. And I think this is just human nature. 
So, if you imagine this scenario into which Hebrews is written, and you have these two categories of people, these two groups, those that were faithful Jewish people who, had not, who did not believe Messiah had come, who still argued that Moses was the one who's superior because he received the law, and then this other group of people who are saying, actually, something has changed here. You can imagine the tension, and you can imagine the conflict, as it were. And into this, the author of Hebrews writes what we just read. He says... Jesus is the high priest who represents God to the people and the people to God, which is a major shift from this camp. Whereas previously, who represented God to the people for a million Torah points? Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, who goes into the temple? The high priest, right? He's the one representative from the line of Aaron, from the Levite tribe. He's the one person who can go into the temple, into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. They used to tie a rope to his ankle and, and he would have like dangly jingle bells on his tassels. So when it stopped moving, they knew that he was dead and they would pull him out. No kidding. Because if you went into the Holy of Holies, it was a big deal. You had to be ceremonial cleansed. There was all kinds of things. If you went in there without doing all the proper things, they would yank him out. So the high priest is the one who represents God to the people and the people to God. So now the author of Hebrews is saying, no, Jesus is the high priest. No longer does this function uh, uh, work this way anymore, but it's Jesus through whom we have access to God. He becomes the mediator between the people and God. That's a shift, major shift. And not only that, but he's an apostle who's been sent by God. Whereas previously, we would have believed that this was Moses, who was an apostle, who received revelation from God and gave to the people. So this is why the author wades into this. He says, he's the faithful one who appointed him. Jesus was faithful, just like Moses was faithful. But Jesus deserves more glory than Moses. Moses was a servant in God's house. But Jesus is the son of the father who is, the, who, who is over all of the house. And so this is the argument he's making. So what's the point here? What's, the, what's he really getting at? And I'm, I'm, of course, reading into this, but I want to suggest it, it, it may be this. Give, give honor and respect where it's due. Give honor and respect where it's due. If you can imagine, humans haven't changed that much. Yeah, we've evolved a little bit, but for the most part, we've, we're the same. And I think sometimes we have the tendency to throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? When, we, when the pendulum swings from one side, it goes all the way to the other. Certainly there were Christians on, in this camp who, were, who had experienced a, a different belief or a change of belief. And I'm guessing, and I think I'm not on, on uh, shaky ground here, but who were making light of Torah, who were making light of Moses, who were sort of casting dispersion, looking back on, oh, do you remember when we had to do all those things? But now we're free, baby! You know, like free, free, free last. So certainly there were those people, and certainly... Uh, there, 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 there had to have been people among them who were speaking about it in a negative light. And the author of Hebrews is saying, no, 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 don't, don't do that. Don't, just because you believe something different, don't treat the people who don't believe what you believe poorly. And it's a good thing we don't do that. Right? It's a good thing that we who believe something don't look down on other people who believe something differently than us. And it's a good thing that we don't cast negative light on those who think differently than we do. It's a good thing that we've evolved. We've come so far from this caveman kind of behavior where we gather up the people who think like us and then look over across the fence. I want to suggest that the author of Hebrews says, hey, listen, don't do that. 
There's something that was beautiful and good and pure and maybe even true about this. Moses was a, 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 revel, a recipient of God's revelation. Torah was a portion of God's revelation too. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, but rather give honor and respect where it's due. Now get it, properly order it. He's saying don't worship angels because they're not to be worshiped. Jesus is. Now, let me transition this a little bit. I, I, if that's kind of the, 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 the main argument that the author is making here, where he's saying, listen, here's the two houses. Here's the house that God has built. Moses was a part of it. He was a servant in God's house. But Jesus is, he's the Lord. He's the, he's the son of the master over all. So make sure that that's in proper order. If that's the argument that he's making, and then don't, 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 be, don't do that. Don't cast dispersion. Don't say those things. What does this mean for us? How do we kind of live into this? Maybe you could say it this way. How you believe what you believe is as important as what you believe. Let me say that again. How you believe what you believe is equally as important as what you believe. The content of your belief. How you hold that belief is equally as important as the content in and of itself. Because you could ascribe to a certain set of beliefs and be a total jerkwad about it, which sort of renders your belief in that thing sort of useless, right? I believe that Jesus is love, and I believe that he gives grace and mercy and forgiveness, but I'm a total jerk in believing that. It doesn't really make sense, right? How you hold the belief that you hold is as important as the belief in and of itself. Just, you know, we're moving to a Catholic church. And it's been very interesting as I sort of give people tours and whatnot, and strangers or, or, or friends or whatever, and we sort of talk about some of the things that are in this place. So in the, in the sacristy, uh, which is where the priests would robe up and they would get ready for, for mass, there is a, uh, uh, like, little, it looks like an old school drinking fountain from your elementary school, right? You remember the porcelain white? And there's a silver cap that sits on top of this drinking fountain. And people are always like, what is that? It's like not a drinking fountain. It's not a urinal, but I'm not sure. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what this is. And so I tell them, I say, so um, this is actually, um, it's plumbed into the earth instead of into the sewer system. Because when the, the priest uh, presides over mass and blesses the sacraments, the wine and the bread, there is a, a very high level of respect and honor given to those things. And so whatever is not consumed by the priest or the people gets poured into this drain that goes into the earth instead of the sewer system. And it's so very fascinating to watch people's response. I mean, if I'm going to do, you know, like let's do theology, I, I don't agree that the wine becomes the blood of Jesus. I think theologically, you're, that's, a, that's a stretch. But some people are like, oh, that's so weird. Why would you do that? And one person was like, wow. That's kind of beautiful, actually, that there's that much honor and respect given to the sacraments and this divine, mysterious interaction that happens when we come to the table and we receive the Lord's Supper. Like, to be able to give it that kind of place in your community of worship that's actually kind of beautiful. And I've learned, I've learned something in this process. Jesus is uh, on, the, on the, in the, the stage, right? There's a corpus uh, of Jesus hanging on the cross. 
And just the other day, I, I caught myself saying, let's get Jesus down off the cross. We're people of resurrection, right? Like, we, the resurrection, that's what, re, that's what this whole thing hangs on. And just the other day, I was there with my friend, and it was late, and there was nobody else in the room, and he and I had this beautiful, intimate conversation about life, and about the struggle that we're in, um, raising kids, and the things that we don't understand. And I looked up, and I saw Jesus hanging on this cross, and I was like, you get it, don't you? And it was totally new for me. How we hold the beliefs that we hold matters. A great deal, a great deal. So as we think about that, just a couple of things before I wrap this thing up. As you are reminded that how you hold the beliefs that you hold is important, what's your job? I would say this, and only this, demonstrate and announce. As a Christian in the world, your job is twofold. Demonstrate and announce. Demonstrate with your lives. Your job is to serve, to love, to give yourself away just like Jesus did. Your life is to look like Calvary. Self-sacrificial love for the other, even for the enemy, to wear a towel around your waist, to bend your knee in humility, and with your life, demonstrate the love and grace that you've received from God. That's your job. Demonstrate and announce. Announce. Testify. These people, Paul, he begins, he says, this is our confession of faith. And when he says confession, it's not like we fess up to something we've done wrong. But he says, no, you confess, you believe, and you say out loud, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God sent to, the, sent, to, sent to earth to die on behalf of our sins, resurrected from the dead. I confess that. So your job as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus in the world, demonstrate and denounce. Now here's God's job. Judge and defend. Judge and defend. Jesus and God together take care of that. They judge. They determine what's evil and what's, what will last and what will not last. They determine and they defend. God doesn't need you to defend him. I was at this lunch the other day and I was with this person and the whole time their, their like default position as a Christian was defending, defending, defending like everybody was the other and everybody was on the outside trying to wreck what's on the inside. And it was just defense, defense, defense. And I left and I thought, gosh, it's got to be tiring. It's just, so here's my encouragement to you. You're free. You're totally free to not worry about judging and defending. You are free to demonstrate and announce the love and grace of God that you have experienced in your own life. And that's it. Leave everything else up to God. You're free. Good news, everybody. Gospel, Evangelion for you today. Demonstrate and announce. That's it. Nothing else. God will judge and God will defend. Now, I would also say this. Awaken is the house. God is the builder. Jesus is the builder. Guys, I love you. Uh, John Mark, literally, just this morning, he came up and he said, um, there's nothing like this. I've been to, a, he grew up, he's a pastor's kid. Nothing like this. And I, am, I brag about you all the time. I love this community, and I, I can't believe that, that I get to be a part of this. I've never experienced anything like it. But there is a very real temptation and possibility for me to fall in love with Awaken, or for you to fall in love with Awaken. Don't fall in love with Awaken. Fall in love with Jesus. This church is not the point. 
This community is not the end. It is not the point. God is the builder. This is the house. Don't fall in love with the house. Fall in love with the builder. Maybe last, I would say this. Moses was found faithful. Moses was invited at a burning bush, which the rabbi said was always burning. He just saw it that day. To walk out a call. And he was faithful. Through thick and thin, whatever we find about Moses, in the end, he was faithful and he did what God asked him to do. My hope and my prayer for us, for this house of God, is that we would be found faithful. That we would be found faithful doing what we've been called to do, which is demonstrating and announcing the way of Jesus in the world and partnering with God in the work of redemption. That's why this place exists. And I just want to say this morning, because I think it's appropriate and, and we need to hear it, that there's a very real possibility and a very real temptation that when we get over there across the river, it's going to be really, really fun. It's going to be amazing. The paint will be fresh. There will not be the smell of deep fat fryers around here. Like there will be carpet on the floor that your babies can like crawl on without you worrying about what has been there before. It will be wonderful, it will be beautiful, and it will be so fun to be together and to sort of say, oh, isn't this sweet? But that's not our call. That building isn't our call. So don't settle. Don't settle in. One author says that we are resident aliens. This is not our home. That is not our home. Our home is in communion with the divine through the resurrected Jesus. That's our home. That's the point. Our call, so my hope and my prayer, is that we as a community would continue. I want to invite you into a season where we imagine what it looks like to be the house of God in this new place with a renewed passion and commitment to demonstrating and announcing and partnering with God in a new place, in a new neighborhood where we look at everything that we do and we ask the question, how does that help us demonstrate and announce and partner? And whatever we find where we come to an answer where it's like, actually, that's not, we say, then we're not going to do it anymore. We celebrate what was, but we let go so that we can receive what will be. So just a few words of encouragement this morning as we turn our hearts towards communion. Whatever you believe how you believe it, how you hold it, it matters. You can believe something that's absolutely true and absolutely right and be a total jerk while doing it. And guess what? No one will like you. And no one will like the Jesus that you like. Don't be those people. Jesus was better than that. Let's you and I be better than that. Our job, demonstrate and announce. God's job, defend and judge. As Green Day once said, you got to keep them separated. <laughs> That's not in the script. The oh, it was the offspring. Thank you. Thank you. Sounds like may as well be Green Day, right? <laughs> Awaken is the house. God is the builder. Friends, fall in love with Jesus. Not, not anything that represents Jesus, whether it's the Bible or a pastor or a, a church or a book or anything. Fall in love with Jesus, and may we be found faithful, living our call as a sacred community of God's house in the world. Amen? I want to invite...
the band to come, and I want to invite you to a table that we come to the last Sunday of every month where Jesus was with his friends on the night that he was to be crucified for us. And he said, this is, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And he took a cup and he blessed it. And he said, this is a cup, a new covenant, which is made known, made real with my blood. And whenever you eat and whenever you drink of this cup and of this bread, do it in remembrance of me. And know that there is some divine, mysterious thing that happens when we come to the table where God is present in a very real way. And so for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear this morning, the Spirit says, come. Come and eat. Come and get what you need. Whatever it is. God, as we come to this table this morning, whatever is in our hearts, whether they are heavy or filled with joy, we come saying yes to you. We come saying, God, we need you. We need you to heal. We need whatever you did for Jesus in resurrection. We need that. So do it. If you're serving communion this morning, I want to invite you to come. And the band will play. And as you feel led to come, take the bread and dip it. There's white grape juice and red wine. And the kids will come and we'll give them honey and pray a blessing over them that God's word would be like honey on their lips. And so it'll be a little crazy up here, but come come and receive the Lord's table. My brother's in the hospital right now, and uh, keep thinking about this psalm. And so, I'm going to read it, but it's more for me than it is for you. But I think it'll down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along right paths for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff that comfort me. a table for me in the presence of my enemies and you anoint my head my cup overflows surely your goodness and your love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever grace and peace my friends I hope and pray that we can actually 
experience for real the things that we say about who God is. That maybe even this week, for the first time, you would find God as shepherd, one who loves you and cares for you and who doesn't leave whatever you're going through. Because I'm banking on it. So um, it's good to be with you. I love you guys. online at www.awakeningcommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awakening Community or on Twitter at Awakening Community. See you next time.